Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servants are warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And so teach us all now, and as I preach, may the words of my mouth, and may the meditation of the hearts of all listening be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So open your Bibles to our sermon text, Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 21 through 23. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 983. And we'll also reread our passage from last time. So we'll begin reading in verse 15. So Colossians chapter 1, begin reading in verses in verse 15. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Last week, we had the great privilege of beholding the glory of Christ as Paul showed how he is supreme over all, supreme over and in the original creation and supreme in redemption, the new creation. Now, in showing Christ's supremacy in all things, we saw that this also means he is all-sufficient. He is all you need for this life and the next. And Paul concluded this section on the supremacy of Christ with a sweeping statement that through Christ, God is pleased to reconcile all things, all creation to himself. And that passage, which concluded our passage last time, now serves as the launching pad for the passage this morning, which is going to be really, in some ways, a further application of this great work of reconciliation in Christ. 
God will reconcile all things to himself through Christ's blood. But now Paul zeroes in to apply this reconciliation to the Colossians, and really that means to you as well, to all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, this is a wonderful summary, a statement of what is the gospel? Taking you from who you were before Christ to who you are now because God has reconciled you to himself in Christ. And then looking forward with the exhortation that you must persevere in this. You must continue in this. And so Paul proclaims the gospel to the Colossians. And this is the gospel you need to hear again this morning. The good news that we celebrate, that we rejoice in, but also the good news that you need to be firmly established in and never shift from. Because you need to know where you've come from, where you are now, and where you are headed. All because of what Christ has done, so that in him you can persevere in the faith. So let's begin. We're going to work from past to present to future. We'll begin with who you once were. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul here begins by describing who each of us were before Christ. This is the state of the unbeliever. Our fallen nature, it goes back to Adam. It's inherited by each and every one of us. We are born in sin, and then we ourselves go on to actually commit sin. Sin is both our nature and our practice. In Reformed theology, we usually tend to default to this language of sin as our baseline for understanding the, uh, our fallen human nature. And that's fine. It's this term sin, it, it provides a good overarching category to explain man's total depravity. But here, Paul, he doesn't use that language of sin. But instead, he uses three other powerful concepts to describe the unbeliever under the power of sin. So let's look at each of these. First, he says, you were alienated. And in context, this is obviously referring to being alienated from God. Although this also has the effect of causing alienation from other people as well. What does this mean? To be alienated means to be separated from fellowship, to have a broken relationship. I'm sure this is something almost all of you have experienced in human relationships. You know the pain of this, the pain of alienation. Alienated means to be estranged, and in this case, to be estranged from your creator, to be cut off from the source of all life and blessing. Paul elaborates on this idea in Ephesians 4.18, where he writes, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, And they were in the garden, and after that first sin, they're cast out of the garden, cast out of God's presence, and the flaming sword prevents them from returning. On this state, alienated from God, alienated from the source of life, man is like a cut flower, cut off from the root, cut off from the source of nutrition, and therefore destined to wither and die. So this alienation, it's the ultimate source of our loneliness, source of that sense that you never quite belong, that you are never really at home, that you can never rest. As Augustine famously prayed, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
But of course, you can never find that rest, you can never find that home, that peace, if you remain alienated from God. Second Paul says here, you are hostile in mind. And again, this is a hostility directed towards God. When asked, what is the greatest command? Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, Matthew 22, 37. And yet here we see that the natural inclination of man, fallen in sin, is to do just the opposite, to hate God in mind. As Paul here says, hostile in mind, he's speaking of a mindset, saying this hostility, it flows from your inner person, from your heart. So really what this is saying is that as a sinner in your mind, your heart, your inmost being, you're hostile, you're at war with God. There's no neutrality here. Now, some may claim, I'm apathetic, I don't care, or I'm agnostic, I don't even know if God exists, how can I be at war with him? But the Bible responds, it says, all know God. They simply suppress this knowledge. And even that suppression is an act of hostility towards their creator. For God has created you, he has given you your body, your life, everything you have, and you owe him worship and obedience. You cannot simply ignore him in the heart of every believer. There's a choice, a choice of self-rule which rejects God's rightful place on the throne of the heart, which rebels against him and hates that he would dare to make any claim to your obedience. The heart of the unbeliever says, I'm in charge. And that is hostility towards God. The third description of the unbeliever is what flows out of this mind hostile to God. It says here, doing evil deeds. If the root is evil, the fruit will be evil as well. I don't think I need to list all the various kinds of evil deeds. There are plenty of lists of evil deeds in the Bible. But the point is that if you have these three things together, alienation, hostility of mind, And then evil deeds flowing out of that, this hostility will then work not just one way from the sinner towards God, but this then provokes God to wrath and hostility toward the sinner as well. For God, he is in his character holy and just. He must punish that which is evil. He must punish the evildoer. And so clearly, what is Paul doing? He is setting the stage that what we desperately need is reconciliation. Now that's where we'll head next. Let me first ask a key question. What if you don't recognize yourself in this description? I hope you do. I hope you see this is who you were. But what if you don't recognize yourself here? Now one possibility is that you need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and to convict you of your sin, to help you see that this is either who you were or who you are now. And knowing the depth of your sin, the depth of your need for a Savior, this is the first step towards receiving Christ and trusting in Him for eternal life. At first, you need to know your sin. You need to know your need. And the second possibility, I think this is less likely, but it's possible that by God's grace, you say, I never knew a day when I didn't know the Lord. 
Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home. The Lord saved you at a very young age and you have very little memory of the time before you were a believer. And yet I would still say to you, don't you still see the remnants of this sin in your heart? Can't you still identify with this and say, this is who I was and who I would be if it were not for the Lord? Don't you say there, but for the grace of God, go I. So Paul says, this is who you were, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In this state, you are utterly helpless to save yourself, to make yourself right with God. But second, let's consider who you are now. Reconcile to God. Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here in this verse, we'll see three parts. We'll see what has been accomplished, how it has been accomplished, and its purpose, where it is going. So first, what has been accomplished is reconciliation. And let me just repeat my definition from last week. Reconciliation means to take two parties who are alienated from each other and to restore them to fellowship, to turn war into peace, dissonance into harmony, to make enemies into friends. And as we read verse 22, it's helpful to recognize this is part of a longer sentence, the direct object, you. It's all the way back at the beginning of verse 21. You, God has now reconciled. Words aren't in the usual English order, English sentence order, but you get the point. God reconciled you to himself. He has made peace to you who were his enemies. And that's the fact. The key here is how did he accomplish this? Back in verse 20, Paul said that reconciliation was by the blood of his, that is Christ's cross. But here he says, referring to the same basic event, he says it's in his body of flesh, by his death. And so in both places we see the cross is absolutely essential. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way to find peace with God. The phrase he uses here, it's enlightening and it's, it's very interesting. He says it's in his body of flesh. And so it may seem a, a bit of an odd phrase, if not a bit cumbersome, but Paul has a very good reason for everything he writes. In verse 18, Paul had just written about the church as Paul's body. And there he was speaking of, of, of Christ's body, sorry, Christ's body, the church. He, he was speaking there in a metaphorical sense. But now he's speaking of his body of flesh that's making clear that he's not speaking about the church, but rather Christ's physical body. But also here, he's, he's, he's saying this for more reasons than just that, not just to contrast the church versus his physical body. Because this is just after several verses on the cosmic scope of Christ's supremacy over all things in creation and redemption of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And these words, they emphasize that he who is God over all took on human flesh that he might die for our sins. This descend from divine glory to humiliating death. It reminds us of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see here the humility of Christ. He who is God Almighty, and yet he is willing to condescend and suffer and die, all so that you might have peace with God. And this peace, it is established because your sins are placed on Christ and he bears the penalty. He satisfies God's wrath in your place, shedding his own blood. When you recognize the grace of God in Jesus, that God has no more hostility towards you because your sins have been forgiven, they have been wiped away. And you can have no more hostility towards him as well. How can you respond in any other way but in a heart overflowing with gratitude and love? And also rejoicing. That's what we see in Romans chapter 5, which we read earlier. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so, this is cause for rejoicing. Having been reconciled to God by Christ's death, Paul then gives a further purpose. He says, this is in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And prior to reconciliation, well, you would not have wanted to come into God's holy presence because you would have been consumed by his wrath. He cannot abide anything or anyone unholy in his presence. But now we see that through Christ's work, you have been transformed. And Paul lists three characteristics here. They are already true of you now in principle because you have been you have been justified. You have received the righteousness of Christ. It is covering you. And they will be true of you completely and fully in the day of Christ Jesus when you are glorified. So I believe here Paul is talking about a future of entering into God's presence when we are presented before him on that final day of judgment after Christ has brought our sanctification to perfection. Now, just as we saw three descriptions of who you were before Christ, before you were reconciled. So here we see three descriptions of who you will be in Christ on that day. But first it says, he will present you holy, set apart from this world with all its filth and sin, set apart, devoted to God, holy even as your heavenly father is holy. Second, it says, he will present you blameless. And this term here, it's, could also be translated without blemish. That's, that's the more core meaning because this term is used throughout the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. It's what it was required for an animal. In order to be fit for sacrifice, there had to be no blemishes, no physical defects. But of course, those animals without blemish, that was just a picture of what God requires of us. No blemishes is actually 
transferred and, and, and it's used here to refer to no moral defects. And so that's why it's translated here, blameless. This is closely related to the third description. Above reproach, free from accusation, not able to be charged with an offense. Now, of course, this is only possible because Christ has taken your sin and he has dealt with it on the cross so that no guilt remains. Paul puts it this way in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so your record of debt, it has been done away with at the cross. There can be no accusation, no charge can stand against you because it has been wiped away. It is finished. And so Christ will present you to the Father, holy, blameless, above reproach. It's a beautiful parallel passage to this in Ephesians 5, using very similar language. You probably know it in the context it's often used in uh, describing marriage, but it's, it's very similar. Husbands loved your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So we long for that day when we will stand in his presence, when we will see the Lord face to face and we will enjoy eternal fellowship with our triune God. So we've seen who you were before Christ, who you are now in Christ reconciled to God and even a glimpse of what is to come when we will stand before him on that final day. And now Paul shifts to focus on how you must continue, the need to persevere in the faith. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. After all this good news, all that Christ has done for us, all that he has done for you, it can be a bit jarring to come to this conditional statement, if you continue. Now, at first glance, it seems as if it calls everything we've just read into question. As if Christ has died for you, taken away all your sins. But if you don't do your part, if you don't carry the ball across the finish line, he's going to take away all the grace he's given to you. It's a lot of pressure. But that is not how the perseverance of the saints works. Paul has already highlighted all that Christ has already done for you in reconciling you to God, what he will do in presenting you blameless before him. And now he's saying you must persevere, yes, but also you will persevere if you are truly in Christ. And this is how Christ preserves his people through your continuing in the faith. And that's why Paul is very careful to write if indeed you continue in the faith. 
If you are truly in Christ, then indeed you will continue. And that's why in this letter, Paul could write a warning like this one, trusting that God will use this warning to spur his readers on to perseverance. While in Philippians, he simply writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Scripture here in these two different things, a a promise and a warning, it's not contradicting itself. God will bring his good work in you to completion. And also, you must continue in the faith as God works in you to preserve you. Now, sometimes in our minds, we can get tied up in knots asking how both can be true. But it's actually that God works in you and preserves you through your continuing in the faith. And we don't always know and understand all the ways that God works in us and through us for our good. That's how he works. Now, Paul, he also tells us how to do this, how to continue in the faith, how you are to persevere. And he does it using a series of building metaphors. First, he says you must be stable, or it could be translated firmly established with your foundation sunk in deep. Your faith is founded on Jesus Christ, who is the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. Sink your roots deep into Christ. So first, stable, and second, steadfast. This is a building that has strong walls, that is immovable, that is not easily shaken by the shifting of the winds. Greg Beale offers this translation, with your foundation established and your structure immovable. It reminds us of the closing words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Matthew seven twenty four and 25. Once you are stable and steadfast, then third, he says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Look to Jesus Christ and to him alone. He is your hope. Add nothing to him. The problem that was happening is that the false teachers in Colossae were trying to shift them from the gospel by adding to it all sorts of things, angel worship, ascetic practices. And Paul wants nothing to do with these things. In Galatia, they wanted to add circumcision as a requirement for salvation. Salvation, And Paul said, no, that is another gospel. And it's contrary to the one that you received. And so Paul here, he clarifies at the end of this verse, which is this one gospel? It's the original gospel you heard, the one Epaphras proclaimed to you. It's the same one that's been proclaimed in all creation. It's the gospel of which I, Paul, am a minister. And of course, it's the gospel that he's just given them here in these verses about Jesus Christ who died to reconcile you to God. There's only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of free grace from God through faith in him. He is the one who reconciles you to God, who will present you blameless before him. So remember the gospel. Rejoice in this gospel. I was lost, but now am found. You were God's enemy. He has made you his friend. He has adopted you as his child. And then continue. Continue in the faith. 
Sink your roots deep into Christ, your Savior, by faith, and let nothing shift you from this hope that you have in Christ. And look forward. Look forward to that day when you will stand in his presence, holy, blameless, and without reproach. Look to him. Always keep looking to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we can never thank you enough for your amazing grace. For it was when we were alienated from you, dead in our sins, when we were your enemies, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to give his life for us so that we might be reconciled to you. And so we praise you for your mercy, for your bountiful forgiveness. And because we are confident that you will sustain us to the end, help us to continue firm in the faith, unwavering and unshifting, no matter what trials or tribulations you bring into our lives. Help us to honor you and to serve you in all we think and say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.